Here at Business and Games, we exclusively use Rowie AU for all of our audio engineering needs. If you're looking for voiceovers, audio editing, or on-location recording, contact him today at Rowie underscore AU on Twitter. Welcome to episode 007 of Business in Games, also known as The Big Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Mayer-Smith. In this show, we chat about anything gaming and technology, tackling the big and small business topics. Today, on episode 007, I have with me Emre Denise, aka Echo Charlie Delta. He's been about four to five years in technology and gaming and is the CEO of Opaque Space, a startup VR agency and company. Mate, how are you today, Emre? Yeah. Yeah, real good, Chris. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. It is quite cold here in Melbourne. You're in Melbourne as well, so you know you know what the go is. Mate, I am frozen. Yeah, I went back Absolutely to frozen. I went back to Tasmania recently, and it was actually warmer in Tasmania with my parents than it was in Melbourne. So, well, yeah, it's why we're going to survive global warming, mate. <laughs> it's going to be <laughs> perpetually cold in Melbourne. <laughs> All right, we've we've changed. We're now the business in environment podcast. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> coral reefs only. What are your thoughts? No, so. Just, just jumping straight into it, really, I wanted to ask you something very general about VR because that's where your passion lies and, and that's what you're doing right now. So a very generalized question is how do you see the VR space right now? A lot of people are forecasting doomsday ideas of what is happening. There's a lot of opinions coming left and right. There's a lot of Facebook lawyers jumping around. So how do you see the market as a whole? Well, I mean, I haven't had as much experience as someone who's watched um, a 20-minute Facebook video about the VR industry, but based on on all the conversations that we've had with various enterprise and entertainment partners, ranging from uh, you know HDC, uh, the people over at Oculus, uh, people at AMD, Nvidia, and things like that, um, there's a substantial amount of capital that's moving into virtual reality tools, ecosystem, and even content. Um, to me. I feel as though that there's these these forecasts of doomsday ideas are more like people just want to see things just just fall in general. I mean, a lot of the forecasts mm. tend to come from people that aren't even actively developing anything in virtual reality or feel somehow disenfranchised from uh, from being able to become active developers. Um, it's quite rare for us to find people that are actively making content or, or tools or working in a sp- space. Um, that essentially egged it with the, the forecast that, oh, yeah, it's all going to go go to hell. Um, like, you know, we've seen some great investments happening in the in, in the sector, especially like you've got the, the obviously like the hero stories like um, Servios with raw data. Uh, you know, they, they closed in on $60 million of funding. Um, they work out of like an aircraft hangar in, in, uh, in San Francisco or LA, somewhere like that. Um, You've got Alchemy getting getting uh, acquired by by Google, which was a huge huge win. Mm. Uh, you've even got local studios here in um in even in Melbourne, you know like Zero Latency Finit closed up their Series A with seven million dollars, uh, working pretty much exclusively in the VR sphere. Um, and you've even got you've got uh two companies that have come out from Melbourne for the last Vivex batch, um, with significant HDC investment as well. Like the ecosystem is, um. It's probably not operating in the sense of smartphones. Like people, people are comparing it against a universal, uh, like third or fourth generation consumer technology. So um, I think that that comparison is unfair. But if you're looking at it as an emerging consumer industry, it's it's all but, you know, it's all but doomsday. Essentially, everything is kind of sustainably correcting itself and and, and an upward trend. If if um, if not actually just just you know continually moving moving forward. So taking the consumer standpoint for a moment, you I just wanted to highlight you were talking about HTC versus Oculus. If I was a general consumer or business aside looking to get into VR as someone who wanted to play some games or, or learn what it's all about, can you explain what the strong points are between the two, how they differ and, and why one person might pick one compared to the other? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that Oculus and HTC are very similar similar hardware platforms now they've both become they're both established a, a sort of parity um but they both have very different uh essentially approaches to the ecosystem so that's a really important point for people to consider especially developers uh hdc has been traditionally known to be a much more hands-on company in, in a sense that you can actually reach out to um to multiple members of hdc who are happy to talk to you uh talk to you about things like financing uh, hardware software support um, even invest into your company, which is the case for us with Opaque Space. Uh, Oculus, in the, in, in the opposite, has been more of a closed ecosystem. They tend to favor exclusive titles. Um, they favor 
uh, very select uh, support for for select titles and licenses and IPs. Whereas, um, and that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying, like you know, comparing the two ecosystems with each other, uh, we're seeing that a lot of innovation is coming out um, of the, the things like the Vivex program, where people are paid money to essentially uh, give back to the, the VR ecosystem. Uh, but on the flip side, Oculus is coming out with some really great quality content. Um, that's obviously going to going to be a little bit upset in the future when you start seeing things like Zenimax moving into into the industry as well and uh, de- developing AAA license titles. Um, but it still remains to be seen how it's going to pan out, especially in 2018. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that draws from a general gaming standpoint what you were saying or fr- from a business in in esports and gaming standpoint, the difference between HTC Vive and the Oculus Rift is very similar to Dota versus League of Legends. You know, Riot Games loves to keep everything in-house and they run their own tournaments all over the world. And if you want to run their tournament, you need to be specially sanctioned by them and that kind of stuff where Dota is more like, you know, they do they do run their international, which is impressive in its own right. Don't get me wrong, but the a lot of the time they will say... You can run whatever you want. You don't have to purchase a license off us. You can go run your Dota 2 tourney. We don't care about, you know, that kind of stuff. We might keep an eye on it, but that's it. So that sounds very similar to the way that you just explained from from HTC and and their competitor. But going back to your company as a, as a general thing, can you explain how your company, being a startup, differs from another business? So this is a very generalized business question. So how does, how does right. you know, a company right. like yours perform versus, say, Coles Supermarkets, Corsair Components, or the mechanic down the road? Well, um, okay, so that's that's actually a good question because that, that helps, um, I think, people listening to get a sense of, of how um, – how emerging technology startups are kind of tackling these questions of, you know, how do you structure your business? So for us, um, I don't think that there's actually much of a difference in terms of the overall business plan, right? Because we try and say, um, we try and say we use traditional business business plans or business methods or parts of market whilst developing unique solutions to, to everyday problems. Like that's a really high level and generalized entrepreneur talk. But what it actually means is that, um, you don't want to reinvent the wheel of how you establish your business model, but instead you want to be able to deliver um, a product or a service or or a technology or a piece of content that people find unique. It's um, you know, for example, Coles, you know, they, they they push the boundaries on innovating on in terms of how they bring uh, produce to to the general consumer um, at a consistent and affordable level. Now they're not going to go and reinvent the supermarket, but their internal operations are probably going to try and always become more efficient, uh, try and f- identify problems and solve them. Um, so mm-hmm. for us, as Opaque Space, um, I would actually say that we don't differ from other businesses, but we have a very unique, uh, almost blue sky kind of outlook on on what kind of services we want to provide in a very traditional sense. So we have, um, you know, we, we're looking to do product development. Uh, we're doing technology development. We're uh, we're doing R&D in-house to try and develop, uh, I guess, new new intellectual properties. Um, but that's that's where things are kind of start to diverge. Um, we're obviously developing emerging technology VR content, uh, which means that the mechanic down the road and, and my day-to-day job might be a little bit different. You know, I hang off the ISS. He's fixing a Toyota. Um, but in the sense of the day-to-day operations, uh, it's pretty similar. Like we, we, we all have to pay our payroll uh we have to find and uh, find and generate revenue find ways to uh, not pay as much tax or you know sustainable tax uh, tax uh payments um find good good kind of government or like state and federal grants or or incentives or rebates and things like that yeah hmm. so going going back to what you were saying about government and we talked a bit off air about this and and, um, you know, I've been having this discussion a lot in esports with a lot of people recently. How do you find the Australian government weighs in? Because you were in Taiwan recently talking to, I think it was a Taipei mayor or someone from the government there. So do you find the support differs? And, you know, that's touching as well on the visa issues that have happened recently in Australia too. Absolutely. I think um, I'm going to be blunt about this, right? Like the Australian government is absolutely archaic in the way that it kind of treats uh, the technology sector and the way that um, like I had a fight with someone on Facebook who basically said uh, if you want faster internet why don't you go build your own like that type of mentality in a, in a, in a Western country that has access to to uh, you know good government services um, 
and not only that, like, you know, people that you can hold accountable and, and have representative democracy just sounds like we're just being willfully ignorant at this stage. What I saw in Taiwan, for example, is that you had a member of parliament who invited us to, to you know, to make time in our schedule, drive down there so that he could actually play our game um, and, and also talk to us about, about virtual reality. Uh, and the guy was actually a manager of one of Taiwan's largest technology funds for the government or tech grants. Um, that same afternoon, we had the largest, uh, the largest bank in Asia invite us to their boardroom so that the, the, the chairman of the board could actually play the game and experience being an astronaut. Like that disparity of interest at, at a high level is something that is going to come home to roost eventually. Like there's going to be a point at which we're going to be looking at international companies that are, that, that are come, kind of eyeing off. Uh, having operations here and not choosing to come to Australia and wondering why. Um, and we're seeing that now, like we're seeing mining portfolios in WA um, or funds that that traditionally invested in primary industries starting to move towards the tech sector. And when they can't find investments here, um, they're starting to move overseas or they're starting to look for overseas investment instead. Mm. And and these will have tangible consequences to us, not just in the way that we, we form policy, but also like going to be people that when they come out of university, will have to move overseas. And that will be the bottom line of it as well, which is, you know, that's how you get a brain drain. And then then the economy goes to hell after that anyway. Mm. And I think, you know, touching on Taiwan, I think that's a very good, very good analysis, very similar population compared to Australia. And, you know, looking at them even in an esports sense, this is an example that I've been using for years that 7-Eleven have been sponsoring their esports league, uh, the Taiwan TESL for you know, five plus years now, and and for five years they've had professional game, like professional teams, eight of which have have been playing in various titles and and things like that. So, you know, if uh, granted Australia is a bigger country in you know land size, but with the similar amount of population, these guys are, are so far ahead of us just with their different ways of thinking and and like you were saying, you know, the the internet, you know, issues with MBN and. It, it being much better in Taiwan with even even at the base level with Taiwan having free Wi-Fi all over Taipei and, and things like that. It's it's very apples and oranges, I guess, comparing the two. So from your standpoint then, what are what are some of the major things that need to change? Are you hoping for even just general council help? Are you hoping for a bit of Victoria state help? Or are you thinking that for something to change and, and for it to be pushed forward and to have more MRAs to have more opaques in Australia, does it need to be federal? I think that um, it goes without saying that at a state level, Victoria has been the national leader in terms of recognizing um, the importance of the games industry as being a multifaceted industry driver. They are, they are without equal, and, and that should be concerning to every other state, not just the, the states, but people living in those states need to, need to start petitioning their, their local governments to say, hey, like, what's, the, what's the go here? Like, are, we gonna, are we just going to rely on agriculture or mining, or um, are we going to try and you know, resuscitate the coal industry? And get that going to, to make our money, um, or you know, are we going to be working like off the back of a of baby boomers that are flipping houses all day long? This needs a change, and we're seeing a shift in countries with higher population densities already seeing entertainment in games industries being huge industry drivers. Uh, like, and, and that that drives things like infrastructure. It drives investment into into tools, into platforms, into services. Not being able to recognize that, I think, means that even though we have a larger landmass compared to Taiwan, we have a much smaller mind uh, and and even like an entrepreneurial spirit as well. Um, I don't see it changing uh, anytime soon. However, recently with the actions of um of of the Greens, like we've started seeing a lot better accountability towards the federal level funding that's pretty like severely required for the games industry. And the, the national conversation has been really strange about that, right? Because people criticize games for asking for things like tax subsidies or, um, or, or federal funding without realizing that every other industry without fail has federal support mechanisms in place, whether they're mm. tax, uh, tax subsidies, fuel subsidies, uh, you know, apprenticeship programs, internship subsidies, whatever they can be. Games seems to be the one that's specifically targeted by very old uh, old school politicians who think that when I talk about games, I'm talking about pet people playing Tetris, you know, or p- kids at the arcade listening to 60s punk music or something like that. It's it's crazy. Hmm. So a lot of what you identified then and and so far in this podcast is about um, is about the enterprise side of things, is business to business, and you know, creating things for companies. How do you see? the uh the entertainment side of vr versus enterprise is that on the up does that need some more development how is that going so virtual reality content content demand 
is actually on the on the rise aggressively in in Asia specifically. Um, and from what we've seen in the U.S., especially out of things, places like Los Angeles and San Francisco, we're seeing a lot of uh, of shopping for for essentially VR content uh, for entertainment that's moving past just tech demos. So the upward trend that we were seeing, especially at the start of last year, was people being able to create essentially a low barrier of entry tech demo or a short game and having maximum returns from that. So Job Simulator, you know, they, they made um, over $3 million from, from Job Simulator. But what people weren't really seeing behind the scenes was that they were making a lot of, lot of technology um, like mixed reality camera camera solutions, networking solutions, uh, having multiplayer VR things like raw data, for example, um, wasn't just successful on content. It was successful on platform and architecture and the technology that helped drive uh, essentially the future of virtual reality entertainment content. Their um, their PVP beta uh, closed beta, I think, was uh, available to the to mem- select members of the public uh, just last month and. It was getting really great reviews, and I think that that's when we're going to start seeing things like um, the, the very start of esports around virtual reality. Um, that's still going to take a long time, but now we're starting to see the content game really, really pick up, and the interest around it really pick up as well. Yeah. So chatting about all this, this innovation and you know, dare I say it, entrepreneurial stuff, because it's obviously quite a watered down word these days that that you would know <laughs> for sure. Um, you know, with all of this stuff being twenty four seven, running a business, traveling a lot. Does it make it hard for you to relax? And, and how, how's the work-life balance in this startup? Everybody is always going to be difficult in a startup, right? Um, we have the mentality at Opaque uh, Space that um, crunch or that, that kind of tilted work-life balance tends to float up as opposed to flow down. Um, and I think it sounds good on paper, but it just means that, that it can become uh, unsustainable after a period of time. So... Um, for me, it's been quite a difficult year in that in that regard because obviously, you know, I was overseas uh, for more than basically more than two months of, of this year, um, traveling city to city, uh, touring with uh, with HTC, um, talking to VCs, talking to different industry heads, uh, and that that was gr- like really beneficial. But it does make it really hard to relax because um, you know I'm getting emails from every different time zone. Uh, you got like eight different Slack channels, and you know. It becomes problematic. Like you have to have your finger on the pulse all the time. Um, mm. And now, when we're going through our fundraising uh, with with investors and things like that, it becomes even more. Like there's always something that needs to be filed or something that needs to be answered or you know what have you. Mm. So you know, touching on a previous question from the Oceania uh, Business and, and Esports Gaming Facebook group from John Dudley, do you yep. find that this high workload is set? by yourself or demanded by the industry that you're in um it's set by myself like this conversation with um with a a pretty good vc uh from canada um who um i i I don't actually know if i'm allowed to name him or not because i never asked him um but he um he was saying that that you know everything seemed to be really well organized and and things were on our end proceeding really well um then that our business plan showed uh i guess like he said something along the lines of um it seems as though that this is a type of plan that was written by someone who's had 15 failed startups previously so that a lot of the the pitfalls had been you know paved over um and our response to that was that because our startup isn't you know we don't we don't we don't employ people in the sense that hey um come work with us for free and you'll get equity at the end of end of whatever mm-hmm. we actually pay people um you know competitive wages for the games industry of uh, in melbourne um that means that I have to set myself a certain pace to go and secure, you know, revenue, secure project funding, uh, make sure things are running on track. Um, and that can be really stressful at a startup level because at a startup level, you have to wear multiple hats and you have to find ways to kind of maximize um, your chances of, of successful funding down the line. Hmm. And So ch- that alongside, you know, worrying about payroll. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. Chatting about wearing different hats, um, you know, we talked a little bit off air about this, but you know, you could say this is almost a bonus question. What is one of the, or, or give us a list of of anywhere between two to five things that you've done in this role that you thought you'd never be involved in? Oh, mate, I mean, <laughs> I joined Opaque um, originally as a concept artist, as a two D artist, and then I somehow became um, the media communication manager. Uh, like the community manager person. At the same time, I became the lead game designer. I, I, I learned how to become essentially a senior level texture artist, like a pretty good proficiency with things like Substance Painter and Designer and whatnot. 
Um, I, I learned how to work in work in engine with Unreal, um, and then now I'm learning how to write business plans and set up financial forecasts. And somehow I, I I've now moved into the 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 role of you know wrangling our our, uh, our investors and you know, even today, like you know, sitting in a boardroom meeting talking about uh, like taxation and and how we're going to set up company structures and things like that. Like I didn't really think that that's where my games career was heading towards. Um, but I think that's that's just the, you know, the price that you pay when you when you have to try and get a startup going off the ground because you're trying to make a sustainable business basically. Mm. So if someone's looking, t- take this for example. If if I'm if I have an idea and I'm looking to just yep. get some feedback to pitch it to learn a little bit more about the industry, what are some pathways for someone to get in there? Reach out to people that have done similar things, right? Like find your key benchmarks. That'd be a really good thing to do. Um, the best thing that I've ever managed, like the best thing that I've done so far, I feel, is um, recognize that other people do things better than I can. So you either pay those people or you ask those people for advice, essentially. Like, you know, you find a good engineer to help you and then you either pay that person or you, you find ways to compensate that person to, to help you do whatever it is that you're trying to do. The same thing with game design, the same thing with art, the same thing with um, even business development. Like I have a couple of mentors in the games industry that I reached out to and said, I seem to be running a game studio. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Can you help me? Like, can you tell me what I should be doing? How, how should I set this up? Um, those things may not seem like important things really critical because every piece of advice that someone gives you is, is a piece of advice that somebody learned by making a mistake or avoiding a critical mistake. So I would say that um, reach out to, to mentors and reach out to people that are key benchmarks um, and put your ego aside, basically. Um, your idea isn't special. Your idea isn't, isn't mind, you know, it's not going to change the world or anything like that until you actually put it to practice. So don't make the mistake of having the ego of, of Elon Musk before you actually get PayPal off the ground um, or anything like that. Yeah, so looking back to... We chatted a bit about companies and such before, and and this is something I've mentioned in previous uh, business engaged podcasts, and specifically in esports ones. That coming coming from a tech manufacturer background myself, working at Corsair and you know working with companies like MSI and such, their VR on a consumer level is very top down uh, pushed. It's very sell products. You know this MSI laptop is VR ready. This Gigabyte graphics card is VR ready. Our Corsair one that we released once again is VR ready. So do you find that that has an effect on the market on your end? Do you think that actually helps or is it more just a, a marketing gimmick for, you know, come buy at $14.99 instead of $15 from their side? See, that's a good question. Um, and if I didn't have the exposure to the, to, to the industry's manufacturing and hardware side that I have right now, I would say that it's a gimmick, but I know that it's not. Um, I happen to know the people that, are behind things like um, like Nvidia's VR works. Um, I know people from MSI. Um, even even you know on the AMD side, I know people. I, I actually know one of the people that um, were in the core team of the Ryzen rollout. Right, like people that are in look, almost critical to to the infrastructure of virtual reality being a consumer level technology, um, and their outlooks on it is not just that you slap a sticker on it and and it, it's VR ready. Apparently. It's that the fundamental architecture of how we're rolling our GPUs and hardware across the board is starting to shift and change. Now, what consumers, I think, are not realizing is that accessibility to virtual reality is something that HTC and Oculus and every other platform holder, including investors such as Facebook, need to push for. And to do that, we need to bring down the cost of you know, the power to dollar ratio of GPUs or, um, or CPUs down. So we need to have people get access to cheaper VR-ready equipment to increase the market size of virtual reality to help investment into virtual reality content get reduced and de-risked so that publishers can move in and say, if I mm. give you $2 million, I'm going to make $10 million back on my product. Which means that it's not in the interest of MSI or AMD or NVIDIA to upprice um, or, or or try and gouge the market for VR ready uh, hardware because oh, they would not be they would not allow for MSI to sell you a four hundred dollar laptop which costs only fifteen bucks to, to to make. They would ask them, and we're we're seeing this now. They're they're forcing the manufacturers to actually decrease their margins, output greater power, uh, or innovate at a faster pace um, because the platforms are at war with each other over these things. Yeah, and a, and a very similar but slightly different chat that I've had with HTC is that 
they're finding adoption of VR is hard for general consumers to understand how to get into the market. You know, you say you need a, a 1070 minimum to play games, but for someone who, you know, just walks into a Harvey Norman or JB Hi-Fi, they don't even know what 1070 means. You know, 1070, what does that mean? Is it a graphics card? Is it a keyboard? You know, what does that mean? So, you know, and, and that's one thing that we've been working with them on a Corsair side is that we've started bundling the Corsair One, a complete gaming system. You just press a non button. It has a HDMI in the front. You know, you can bundle it with a Vive or an Oculus. You can plug it in. You can go away. Do you? What do you think needs to change for you know the general people to be able to pick that up? Is the PSVR a step towards that? Should there be more yes, steps? Absolutely. So, I think what Corsair is doing is excellent. It is definitely in the right right uh, direction because you're making it. You know, it's less about will my computer run this. It's more that oh yeah, you know, every computer should run VR. Like VR needs to be accessible. The thing with PSVR is that it allowed for the lowest common denominator to be able to access virtual reality content at a level of interactivity that's you know similar to what Oculus and and and, um, and HTC users are getting as well. I think that um, what we're what we're seeing with HTC especially is that they are um, they've had four hundred and forty thousand units adopted um, or, or sold at the at this point, but that number doesn't reflect home users. Um, home users, I think, are a lot lower than that number. But we, what we're seeing, especially in Asia and North America, is that installation um, and arcade adoption of virtual reality is on the rise. So I think that this cycle of technology adoption is more similar to the very beginning of, of how PC games or console games were adopted or, or you know these um, platforms were adopted than what we thought was going to happen in a sense of just smartphone adoption. So you know, first come the arcades. Then come the the basic home consumer editions. Then come the second generation um, hardware that allows for people to just have, um, you know, smaller smaller uh, PCs or or much higher fidelity of consoles. Because um, there was a time, for example, when the PlayStation and the home PC were were competing with each other, and there was a time after that when the N64, for example, almost demolished the home PCs. Like you'd have to have a significant investment into your home PC to be able to have parity with a console. Now, however, however, people are like, you know, I can, I can pop down and grab a $2,500 MSI laptop that's going to completely annihilate my PS4 in terms of just the fidelity of experience I can get out of it. Uh, VR, I think, is going to have the same cycle. Arcades, uh, and then we're going to see home, home um, users with uh, technology adopters having the, having the edge on it. And then consoles, first-generation consoles. Um, but then we're going to start seeing, you know, higher adoption roll out. And... Um, Microsoft Scorpio, or now it's called the Xbox X One Box X One, whatever it's called now, is yeah. um, is signaling that Microsoft's moving into virtual reality. Apple just did the AR kit release, signaling that they're moving into better support for AR, um, and they're uh, they're opening up the VR ecosystem as well. So we're seeing all the right signals um, that that are showing us that virtual reality is definitely here to stay. It's just about the way it's adopted by a larger market that's going to dictate how people will um, will have viable uh, presence there as well. Would you say that VR growing is a very conscious business decision compared to how gaming in general grew? You know, it's kind of like the the little man thing of gaming is people just started playing Tetris <laughs> and Snake and it it kind of exploded out of nowhere. And, and esports started in a similar way too. But from what you're saying and the whole ecosystem and how these people are specifically planning towards it, it sounds like VR is a, is a manufactured tech, tech uh, monopoly instead of something that just came out of nowhere from the bottom. It's never nowhere. Right, like, and I think that there there is a there's a degree of um is at play here that people are trying different ideas and the ones that are successful perpetuate new ideas, um, and that tends to be you know dictated by the flow of capital. So if I come up with an idea for a VR ecosystem or a VR esports or whatever, and that sticks, that's going to dictate how we adopt and how how we kind of shape virtual reality being adopted um, by the consumer market. That that aside, um. I think that there is a lot of deli- like deliberacy behind um, how HDC and Oculus are, are treating the ecosystem. So it sounds as though that, and from what I've seen internally at um, HDC Beijing um, and HDC uh, Shanghai and San Francisco and Taipei, we're seeing is that there is very long-term uh, strategies that are that are in play right now. So these companies do have definitely a, um, a deliberate plan on how they're going to deploy the market how they're going to foster the market, educate new consumers, 
and in even kind of direct new uh, new generation of consumers towards having a better understanding of how how virtual reality works essentially um there's some un unannounced programs that are in the works now by hdc that we're going to be seeing some pretty pretty large uh pretty large kind of um what was it deployments out um yeah sorry i'm getting i'm actually like literally getting messages from hdc china right now on on like just vr deployments there as well so <laughs> um we're gonna we're gonna be seeing multiple regional deployments of uh, 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 across entertainment and enterprise as well yeah interesting and chatting about you know the long game um and that's a very weak segue into what i wanted to chat about is what is your thoughts on the roles of investors in this kind of space and and how do they differ to a sponsorship a partnership, uh, Kickstarter funding, or just making direct revenue through sales? I think that, like, is accelerating. It's um, it's slowed down. There's, there's a term that I'm using now, which I'm actually getting a lot more fond of, which is called uh, the VR winter, right? So it's, it's a cycle. We know that there was a lot of really bullish investment that happened at 2016. Um, people obviously had a lot of uh, speculation as to the adoption of virtual reality. They were, they were saying that there was going to be like a, several million Vive units out in the wild and several million Oculus kits and everyone was going to have a VR kit at home. That was irresponsible. But the market correction now has meant that it's a lot more deliberate investment going on. So people are identifying um, investments that are not just around content, but also around platform, around ecosystem, around tools. But now we're seeing the real big players come to market. So Autodesk just announced that they have a new R&D division that's that's focused on virtual reality tools and VR film production tools as well. Um, on top of that, we're starting to see investment from, from Microsoft towards mixed reality and virtual reality headsets. Um, alongside the same time as PSVR did confirm that they've sold over 1.2 million PSVR kits to, to open the open market. Um, so investment's going to be play a big role in this, especially since that now the market's correcting itself, there's going to be a lot more um, informed investment happening. And once you start seeing some success stories coming out, I think that it's going to warm up uh, at a lot, lot, lot quicker pace. Um, with sponsorships, AMD, Corsair, NVIDIA, um, to name a few of these companies, have very active roles as sponsors of both hardware um, as well as allowing for small businesses in virtual reality or emerging technologies um, to have a voice. Like NVIDIA... You know, featured us at the the GTC, no, sorry, the GPU Technology Conference very prominently. So, um, uh, it, like, and we're selected up as one of the top ten uh, VR startups around the world as well for for that for that conference. Um, at the same time as AMD um, having a really prominent role in giving us uh, access to, to hardware um, and and trying to get us more and more. Um, I guess access to the VR arcade market because AMD supplies a lot of lot of arcades across China and North America. So you know, there's there's a lot of options there for for businesses that are operating in, the, in this environment now, um, and they'll they'll continue to grow basically. So taking that into consideration, what what are the next steps or, or what needs to happen to transform Opaque from being a startup to being just a general company and dropping the startup? part of it when when oh, is the start be great. when, when um, does the start finish and when do you become just an up that would be the question i think we're almost there um uh we've finished our first title that's going to be deployed across um across arcades in uh in china and north america for the vr industry um we've secured our next project as well which is going to be um announced in a short time but it's it's going to be a pretty large scale vr uh platform deployment across multiple uh, museums and essentially uh, educational sites across Asia and North America. Um, for for a company that's starting to grow now, uh, I think that we're we're moving away from the startup phase, which means that um, when we're having our discussions with uh, with our Series A investors, we start having a really good position of confidence because we don't see ourselves as a startup. Like we see ourselves as a viable business and a sustainable business at that. I mean, when you're working with uh, with partners such as NASA, for example, to help them with their their training and simulation tools. It, like you, you tend to have a bit of leverage in that conversation, I guess, with with our potential investors. Mm. And is that your is that your favoured is that your favoured gotcha line or your pickup line? Is I've I've been to NASA, I've worked with NASA. <laughs> oh, mate, yeah. I mean, um, I use slide like I, I, I'll shamelessly say this, right? Because it's a, it's a good entrepreneurial tip, I guess, for people. Shamelessly flaunt 
the, the the strengths of your business. Like when people see me hanging off um, the active response gravity offload system at NASA, which is normally used to train astronauts, they kind of go, "All right, well, this this guy probably knows what he's talking about in terms of um, in terms of him saying that you know he's he's making VR uh, games and Sims and, and and tools and stuff like that." Um, mm. That is not something that we take for granted, though. Like um, we do we do tend to foster a pretty healthy relationship. Um, with the folks over at the Hybrid Rally Laboratory at NASA, um, and they've been really generous in how they've had their interactions with us as well. But it, we we do u- utilize that in order to um, help instill confidence with our investors too. Yeah, and installing confidence is great, and that's that's something great that I haven't thought about portraying too much on the big podcast that that you've talked about. There is that for people who've been around in various scenes for a while, myself in esports, you in VR, other people in startups, general technology vendors, whatever. You should be spruiking about your business ideas, your business experience, and what you're working on instead of this is who I know, this is who I'm currently talking to, or this is what I'm going to be doing in the future. Because from a personal standpoint, nothing infuriates me more than oh yeah, I already know that person, or I already know that person's boss. I'd rather be saying you know this is what I'm working on. These are my business ideas and this is what I want to help in, in doing. It's about the thing I said about ego, right? Like being genuine and being personable uh, is really important. Um, and like recognizing the fact that, you know, you're there, to, you're there to foster a business. So you know when you need to be, when you need to actually, you know, talk about your company's strengths uh, and talk about your, your forward plans, um, your, your forecasts. But having the, I guess, the right mindset to be able to say that, um, that wherever there's help, wherever there's advice, wherever there's guidance, you take it. Like wherever there's an introduction to be made or someone has a, like a tip for you or someone has some feedback, you take that, right? Because the worst thing that can ever happen is, is not having access to those things because that means that nobody cares about what you're doing anyway. Mm, yeah. So, you know, I have written down here as well as a bonus question. So something going on to a completely different line. What What's a barrier to a company like yours considering an esports VR title? What would it take? I actually think VR esports, it's definitely going to happen, right? Um, VR and AR esports, as both like a a previous game designer and and now like a like a game studio owner, I'm telling you now, VR esports, it's going to happen. But what makes esports special in my eyes, and it's just my opinion, is the fact that anyone can become an esports athlete, or, or or they can become a competitor, right? Everybody has a shot. Right now, because virtual reality, the barrier of virtual reality means that you need to have like several thousands of dollars of investment, that's locked away. Um, I think that that is a problem. And until we start fixing the, the architecture problems around, around VR esports, like, for example, what made um, the very genesis of, virtu- like, uh, of, um, of uh, traditional esports or games in esports like uh, StarCraft popular was the ability for people to watch replays and games we're still lacking a lot of that in virtual reality we're lacking um audience observation and we're lacking the ability for people to make engaging recordings um that that people are you know genuinely excited by and i think until we fix those two problems of accessibility and making um entertainment out of out out of vr esports we're not going to get there so what it would take for me is to have good architecture and platforms that host a a you know good feedback uh, sorry playback mechanisms and for every home to have access to a, to, to a virtual reality kit in one way or another so that everyone can have a chance at, at, at playing, essentially. So talking about esports or even gaming in general, what are the, what are the major components going into make, making a VR title compared to making, say, a traditional first-person shooter title? I think that um, people need to realize that in virtual reality, you're dealing with human being into a digital environment. Um, so let's, you know, let's take in the, the, the comparison of... Um, of onward compared to CSGO, right? In CS, you know that the player's hands are going to be locked on to the AK-47. But in onward, a player can choose to throw that AK-47 at someone else's face, or they can choose to um, to rope their hand around a corner and blind fire into it. Or um, they can use like a bat to knock a grenade or something like that. Like you start seeing a lot of gameplay options and, and agency open up. Um, that means that that environment has freedom, but it also has unpredictability. And balancing around that environment can be quite difficult, especially in a multiplayer title. Um, it's interesting seeing that a lot of VR kind of like warehouse scale titles or, um, or, or, or multiplayer titles are, you know, 
trying to stick to PvE type of gameplay, for example, because I think a lot of people recognize that PvP is still quite difficult to balance out. Um, and we're going to be seeing a lot of pushes in content deployments of people trying to overcome that with novel solutions, especially uh, I think that the, the multiple kind of uh, locomotion methods that uh, raw data PvP is employing is a, is a good example of that because people are trying to figure out how we're going to get around, um, I guess, the stigma of comparisons between FPS in traditional mouse and keyboard or console gameplay versus FPSs in virtual reality. Yeah, interesting. So there's, you know, that's that definitely answered the question quite well. And yeah, there's definitely <laughs> a lot. There's definitely a lot to take in, into consideration because, you know, as far as the big podcast goes, we've had on a lot of people ranging from influencers and, you know, people who get tattooed for a meme for a video and and you know lit on fire that's to great. Yeah. to people who make their own YouTube videos, but then to someone who, you know, works so actively in VR and and it's something that you know me as a consumer and as well as a, a business advocate and someone who's interested in tech business, I find it. I find VR something a little bit hard to take track of and a little bit hard to understand at times, which is why we wanted someone like you to come onto the big podcast. So taking that into account, um, being someone who's heavily involved yourself, where can people keep updated on the trends, on what's happening and get this reliable information like you've been talking about rather than just, you know, VR is the best, everyone's going to have one to a year later, uh, you know, woe is me, everyone's going to lose their money and have to sell their Ferraris and, and you know, live in, live in their mum's basement again. That's a good question, and it's really coincidental and timed well. Um, one of the things that I'm looking at doing is actually uh, working with um, MCV Pacific to to write um, essentially like a monthly industry report about virtual reality. Um, so that's one, one of the places I think that keep an eye out for that. Um, I think MCV, MCV will publish the article once it's ready or once I'll get around to writing it at 3 a.m. at night one, time, one day. Um, the other one is I would say that um, like, uh, like Giant Bomb and um, – and Gamma Sutra, they they tend to have good blogs and or good good coverage of um of trends in in virtual reality and emerging emerging industries. Um, stay away from stuff like you know Mashable and Buzzfeed and things like that, where um people are trying to essentially draw audiences from from hype. You know, no virtual reality is not failing. No virtual reality is not not the best new next thing. We know those things, right? Um, we need to move away from claims like that because all they're doing is is creating. Uh, polarization in a consumer market. So any 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 sites that um, tend to treat virtual reality as just another industry, including like something like as simple as Forbes or Business Review, that's fine. Those are I think those are really good good places to uh, to track for uh, for updates in the industry. Yeah. So wrapping up with a with a final question as well. What what is your view on on VR pornography? Is that something you see yourself in? Is that something you see general business people getting interested in now? Because obviously, you know, pornography being such a massive industry globally, or do you think that the people who work in that will stay working in that industry and and continue to innovate as they will? I think that um, that's a question that's two part, right? Because we recognize the fact that um, that adult entertainment in in any sector has been a driving force in emerging technologies, from uh, online streaming to online transactions. Um, that's that's a fact. That's just the way that technology has gone. But there is a problem that, um, and and this is true for all forms of pornography, in the sense that we need to be able to uh, to recognize that there are issues around human trafficking. There are issues about uh, how, uh, especially women are treated, or um, or even in some cases. Like underage women are trafficked in order to produce these things. Um, so ethical sourcing around that, removing demonization of women working in porn is pretty important, or or men in porn as well, and and trying to make it so that we see these things as ethical industries before we start moving into how we can capitalize or commercialize those things in emerging technologies. I think that once we start viewing it as a more ethical, um, ethical kind of market, and I know there's a lot of you know great people that are trying to work towards um, towards driving that um, and making it a much more positive industry. Um, I'd say that we, we're probably going to sit and, and wait on that one. Um, I have no problem with people that are work in, in pornography or um, who, who work in sex industries, uh, but I do recognize that the production of these things can come from problematic places, essentially. Yeah, and I think it's, like you said, it's the untold link between general technology yeah. and the adult entertainment industry is something that's been a driving force. And, you know, if you look at the top viewed websites in the world, it's obviously they're getting a lot of clicks. People are interested in them. And it's, you know, at a base very similar to how esports and, and how gaming started. It was very, 
Um, you know, gaming's never a thing. Like like we were saying a lot off air and a bit on air as well. You know, a lot of the politicians think gaming is just Tetris, or you know, a lot of the politicians just think gaming is just their kid plays Minecraft. But if you think about it, you know, if their kid plays Minecraft, their friend's kid does, and their other friend's six kids all play Minecraft. So there's obviously an industry based around that. So, you know, that's something very interesting to take into account. And you know, I guess once again, that really goes back to what you were saying about adoption of cheap. Um, VR to be able to get that entry level out to the mass audience as well. But you know, one one yeah, final absolutely. one final triple bonus question I wanted to ask is, you know, people yeah. can follow you on Twitter at uh, mray underscore c underscore Denise, and you asked a question that I thought was very interesting. It was a poll, and it was, "What's your most hated <laughs> entrepreneurial type saying or word?" So it included things such as hustling thought leader, yep. etc. So can you give your way in on uh, on what you think the most annoying is? I absolutely hate it when people say they're crushing it. Like, I hate that term so much. I don't even know why I hate it. It's like an irrational <laughs> hatred. I mean, I have worked as a nightclub bouncer on, on front doors for seven years. I've heard all types of weird phrases that people have said to me, yet crushing it gets under my skin so far because I just see a room full of dudes who are really excited about some new startup ideas and then they're complimenting each other saying, yeah, great, crushing it. You're crushing it, mate. You're crushing it. And that just annoys me. It's like... None of you are crushing it. None of you are doing anything. You're just, you're just, you're just saying crushing it all day. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it reminds it's so me, irrational. It reminds me of the old dude bro terminology, I guess. You know, bumping fists and they're like, bro, I'm hustling. I'm working so hard. You know, working 24-7. Take a look at my blog and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's why I say I, t- I take it a bit lighthearted, but you, you can probably tell if you listen back to a few of my big podcasts that I really, you know, it gets under my skin the word ent- entrepreneurial. You know, that's something that I won't identify myself as because everyone who sells Herbalife as an entrepreneur or owns a Facebook page that, that, uh, you know, re that, that republishes memes as an yeah. entrepreneur. So, you know, and I guess that's, that's probably a final wrap up question. How do you see yourself in the entrepreneurial space? And, and is that something you identify with and, and how do you work around that? So Chris, I, I wanted to ask you, have you heard about Herbalife? <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have now, I have now. And, and entrepreneur entrepreneurs need to. Um, there's two types of entrepreneurs that I both hate and and respect greatly. The ones that I hate are people that think that um, you know being in and having a little bit of of success means that they can start passing judgment onto onto people who are not well off, or they they start making a lot of you know judgmental kind of outlooks on on I did it, why can't you type of type of mentality. And I think that those entrepreneurs, cast, how's that going? Is that is that a big no no? I don't know. Um, they're, they're poo. They're poo people, okay? <laughs> they're, they're, they're people that I hold in very low regard. Um, good entrepreneurs that I've seen so far, including including people that have been not just quite successful, but also very driven and, and passionate and focused, um, tend to be quite not just humble, but really willing to to understand and have and have human empathy. Um, and the further you look up and the further you you, you, you kind of trace the big money of, of entrepreneurs, um, there is a disconnect between, you know, the guys that made a hundred million dollars versus the guys that have sixty billion dollars, and and the way that they they look at things like um like, you know, making good social progress, uh, putting money into into helping generations of people and, and whatnot. Um, hmm. The difference between Uber and SpaceX, to to put it lightly, um, that's that's probably the polar opposites of of how people people uh, view entrepreneurship. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I love people who do entrepreneurial stuff. I do it myself, and most of the people on the big podcast are those type of people, um, unless, you know, running their own projects and that kind of stuff. But like you said, it gets under gets under my skin and gets under your skin when people do the hustle and bro working 24, you know, working 29-8 basically is the way that they, they like to say it, you know, 29 hours a day, eight days a week. 29-8, is that? Yeah. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure I've read that before. Okay. So, you know, just the overinflation of that kind of stuff. But, you know, negativity aside, like you said, it is all about positivity. It's about, and that's one reason I want to run the big podcast, is to help get some information out there from people who have had some sort of success and who are actually working on some businesses and growing and they're, they're people that I can you know, take a look at and say, okay, you guys are, are getting somewhere and you're not screwing over people by doing it. And you're, you know, going to be helping people on the way. So that's why we're doing things like the big, the big podcast, uh, you know, on a personal level, I'm doing a lot of, a lot of very cheap mentoring for, you know, 10 to 12 people at the moment, helping them get into the tech and esports scene. And we're also running the big industry meetup in Melbourne and the next one in Sydney, which will be announced very soon, probably already announced oh, by great. the time that this is out. And it's, you know, it's about networking. It's about, 
you know, uh, a TEDx where it's not just some guy on stage talking. You can have a round table and, and people can catch up. And, you know, talking about catching up and once again, a beautiful segue, where can people follow your work and, and what you've been doing and what you'll be doing in the future? Oh, come um, follow us on, uh, on Opaque Space on Twitter. We always tend to post some cool stuff up there. Uh, we've got some really cool stuff coming out um, real soon, actually. Uh, we should have... Um, so of the Earthlight's kind of arcade deployment that's going to be up around uh, Australia, North America, and Asia. Um, so you can find us also at www.earthlightvr.com to keep up with uh, Opaque Space's nefarious game plans. Uh, so for those of you that are listening but don't know, we are building a virtual reality game in collaboration with NASA to help people not only go to space but also help them uh, build better programs that enable uh, NASA to engage in training, simulation, and tool development um, at the Johnson Space Center. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you to the audience for listening into episode 007 of the Business in Games podcast. Who would you like us to chat to in the future? You can contact us at Business in Games on Twitter and also facebook.com forward slash Business in Games. Make sure you also check out the Oceania Esports and Gaming Business Group on Facebook where you can chat about anything you heard today or any ideas you have or to talk to some other like-minded individuals. You can also follow Emre himself at Emre underscore C underscore Denise. That's D-E-N-I-Z on Twitter. Or you can follow me at Smithy Mayo on Twitter or on facebook.com forward slash Smithy Mayo. Once again, thanks for listening in. We'll have episode double eight with you again soon. Thanks and bye for now. Do you know where to go in order to read about all the latest esports content? Stay up to date, as we do, by visiting www.respawn.ninja, providing the best gaming content that Australia and New Zealand has to offer. 